Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm the publications editor for the International Horn Society and your host. This episode is for April 2022 and I hope that uh, all of you out there uh, all over the world are having a great uh, month of April uh, here in the northern hemisphere uh, at least where I am down in the southern part of the United States uh, the weather is starting to warm up it's still bearable outside which is uh which is pretty nice. And uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the upcoming IHS symposium in August at Texas A&M University Kingsville. If you heard our previous episode, the one with uh, Jennifer Schultes, our amazing host of IHS 54, you got to hear all about some of the exciting things that are going to happen there. Um, let's see, other things going on in my uh, professional uh, life at the moment. We are wrapping up the semester here at my university, and uh, for all of my colleagues on that uh, particular semester system, I, I imagine you're getting close to the end of your semesters as well. Uh, in other places around the world, you may be starting your academic year or uh, in the middle of it. Uh, regardless, I hope that things are going well for you. Um, my guest today, Dr. Mike Harcrow, is a professor of music at Messiah University in uh, Pennsylvania and the editor, uh, newly minted editor, of the Horn and Moore e-newsletter of the IHS. And uh, we spend a good bit of time talking about that today, as well as uh, Mike's various international performing experiences. He performed professionally in Korea for a number of years and has judged uh, some uh, competitions. He's an artist for Crispa horns, which is uh, something we, we spend uh, a little bit of time talking about. So uh, there's quite a bit of variety in today's episode. So uh, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike Harcrow. So you're you're up there in Mechanicsburg, huh? Yes, um, on the west shore of the Susquehanna River from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, our state capital. I say okay. our like it's my home state, but I'm originally from Texas. Oh my goodness. That, I bet the winters were a, a bit of an adjustment. Oh yeah. Um, I don't mind watching snow. I don't like driving in it, and I like shoveling it even less. So, oh, yeah, yeah. But fortunately, our driveway is only 15 feet long, so it's not that bad a job. Well, that's good. That's great. And, and thanks for being here with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me on the podcast. Um, for those who may not be familiar with uh, who you are and what you've been doing, give us maybe the, uh, the thumbnail sketch of how you got to where you are being a professor of music at Messiah College in Pennsylvania in, in the United States. Uh, you've had a very, dis- you continue to have a very distinguished career. You've performed internationally, done a lot of orchestral playing and teaching. So, you know, uh, you talk about as little or as much of that as you like. Okay. Well, I will. Um, I'll start with just my education and then then jump over some years to Korea. Um, I have a, a Bachelor of Music Education from what was at the time West Texas State University. It's now part of the A&M system, West Texas A&M. And uh, a few years later, I did a master's degree in horn performance at the University of Miami with Bob Elworthy while he was still living. He's a former principal horn of the Minnesota Orchestra. Uh, And I had the great fortune to kind of play up and down the coast there when I was uh, in Miami. And then I uh, went to Korea and worked there for 14 years. I originally went as a 
Christian missionary, but ended up as principal horn in the National Symphony after um, just fortuitous circumstances and uh, some years. So that's how I finished my career there. And then I came back to the States and did a doctorate uh, at the University of North Texas, which is near my hometown. I grew up uh, in northern Dallas suburbs and graduated high school from Louisville High School, uh-huh. um, just south of Denton there. Um, so at the end of my coursework, um, I was, I actually, this is a, a funny story. I went to the Staples, an office supply store, to buy all the nice paper and the blank CDs to send out packets for interviews. Mm-hmm. And I got home from the store and our home phone was ringing. For people who don't know, home phones actually <laughs> did exist at that time. It wasn't that long ago, honestly. That was uh, 2003, 2002, mm-hmm. yeah, 2003. Um, and I picked it up and it was the chair of the music department here at at Messiah University, and he said, hey, I got your your name from some professor friends of mine down there, and they think you'd be a great candidate for us. Um, So I flew up, played the audition, took the interview, and that was the only interview I had. I took the job. They offered me the job. I took it and been here. This is my 16th year and really enjoy this place and the size of the department and the variety of things that I do. So... um, yeah, looking maybe at eight, eight, maybe 10 more years of teaching here before retirement. We'll see how the finances look for that. Sure. Yeah. The light at the end of the tunnel. That's, that's amazing. That's fantastic. And, you know, it, it strikes me uh, that Messiah is, there's a lot of great brass stuff going on there, period, because I know a few years ago they had national trumpet competition there, right. I believe. And, right. you know, there's lots of other things going on in, in the brass world uh, kind of centered around that. And, that, you know, it, universities and colleges in general are special places, and it's always cool for each, you know, individual campus to have their own kind of unique culture and, and cool stuff going on. So I, that's that's really great. Yeah. Um well, we, my department chair is, is William Stoneman, who is um, he is uh, the competition's director for the National Trumpet Competition. We've actually hosted that twice. He hosted ITG uh, across the river in Harrisburg because our campus is a little small and couldn't quite accommodate all the trumpet players from around the world. But it was just you know, a 10 minute drive over there. Um, so he's done a lot. And I'm super fortunate to have him as a, as a colleague. And we get along great. Now, we're the only full-time brass faculty here. There's actually not a full-time low brass person, but our adjuncts are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our little department is flourishing. So it's a, it's a great place to be. I like it. And the other things I do besides teaching horn, uh, I'm actually sort of a de facto head of the brass department because he's mm-hmm. department chair. So I really take care of communicating and overseeing uh, what all's going on. Uh, he and I co-direct the brass choir, and then I coach all of the brass chamber music from our brass quintets to horn choir, um, and then you know kind of help out low brass since we have adjuncts teaching those instruments. Uh, and I'm also the head of the theory department. And they're those are all the things I love: horn, mm-hmm. brass, and theory. It's it's what I really enjoy doing. So that's um, awesome. I have I have fun at my job. I really do. Well, that's that's good. Yeah, I mean, that's in this day and age. I mean, a, a job that you can be happy with and and feel feel fulfilled, and that you're making mm-hmm. a difference. I mean, it's it's totally worth its weight um, in gold. Now, I yeah. want to step back just a little bit and talk 
So you, you mentioned you got this uh, playing job in Korea. How did that come to pass and what was the audition process like for that? Because I think, you know, if, uh, if there are American listeners and they're familiar with the audition system in American orchestras, it goes one way and then European orchestras are a different way. And, you know, different, different places have their own approach to uh, getting new members into their orchestra. Well, I had kind of worked myself out of the missionary work. Uh, there were Korean leaders that took that over, and it was awesome. That's what I had hoped for. Um, and um, just through a series of circumstances, ended up finding out that there was an opening for an associate principal job in the National Symphony. It's called the Korean Symphony Orchestra, but it is basically the National Symphony, one of three large orchestras in Seoul, along mm -hmm. with the City Symphony, the Seoul Philharmonic, and then the, the Broadcasting Orchestra or KBS Orchestra. So uh, I, you know, hadn't played a whole lot, but I, you know, practiced up an audition, and I knew that the National Symphony played its own concert series, um, but they also played for the National Chorus and the National Ballet and the National Opera. And that was super appealing to me. And I'd never really played ballet or opera, but I wanted to, I wanted to learn all that stuff. So um, there was not a specific audition list. So I worked up kind of a mix of things, particularly from the symphonic rep and from opera, uh -huh. and uh, showed up for the audition. I was the only one auditioning, at least that, and I don't know that they had any other auditions. If, if they did, I was never told. Uh -huh. um, but I went into the rehearsal room and was face-to-face -face with the panel, okay. a large panel of about 60, <laughs> all the principal players and the music director and a few other uh. people, just all staring me down. Um, so it was like nothing I'd ever done or seen before. And I got through the end of what I had prepared, and they started asking for things. Okay. And I didn't have other music there, so I was able to play some of it from memory, <laughs> which was all right. And then there were some other things I just had to say. I, I Honestly, I don't have that memorized. I'm really sorry. But I'm glad I had the things memorized that I did, and they offered me the position. Um, and I took it, which was great for my wife, who's Korean, and you know, to, to continue to live there. Um, so... I was, act, I was the associate principal by that appointment, but I ended up playing second horn because that's what the principal player liked after he kind of heard what was going on in the section. He said, hey, could, uh, play first if I'm not here, but play second the rest of the time. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and he was a Russian man, uh, Alexander Akimov, and I actually had uh, him and his son create an article for Horn and More, our electronic newsletter. Oh, great. Um, Alexander, unfortunately, subsequently has passed away, and that uh, saddens me greatly. He was a good friend. We were like the two white guys in this Korean orchestra. <laughs> uh, so we relied on each other a lot. And his son, Sergei, is there playing in the Seoul Philharmonic in the City Symphony still, and just a fabulous player. And we have some stories there, too, but uh, if that doesn't come up, it's all right. Um, so playing between second and first, usually second, he wasn't gone that much uh, because honestly, there wasn't an associate hmm. in that orchestra. We had four players, uh, him and myself and two Korean men. Uh, and it was a, a good orchestra. I mean, we had a, a former um, associate concert master from the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Orchestra as our concert master, a Korean man. And of wow. course, their concert master now is Korean. So there's, there's kind of this long relationship um, you know, between some of the great violin studios in Korea and some American orchestras, which is cool, and orchestras around the world, frankly. Right. Um, so um, Alexander, the principal horn player, um, 
was playing a handmade mouthpiece that he had um, had made for him by his, his teacher in Russia, and it wasn't plated. And it had never been plated. It was just raw brass. Hmm. And he played on a Holton horn that had been issued to him by the um, theater in Minsk, where he was hmm. from, in Belarus. And they were letting him borrow it. <laughs> he eventually did have to return it. Um, not that it was the best horn in the world anyway, but that's, you know, they were high dollar things then in, in that part of the world. But what happened with that mouthpiece is that his lips started to, uh, I think, get brass poisoning. Um, his skin would start to slough off. He also had a problem with his teeth. His two front teeth were, um, for lack of a better word, rotten. Oh, my goodness. So he, um, over the course of a few years, well, it was, I guess it was about three years, um, his playing started to decline. Mm. And he was, it was the, the most awful thing I'd ever seen. I was standing with him before a concert, and the, the uh, personnel manager came to him and said, Oh, Alexander, tonight's your last concert. Oh, no. And that was the first time he'd heard about it. He was fired before a concert and had to play it anyway. Oh, my goodness. And to his credit, he did a stellar job. It was probably the best playing he'd done in, in a few months. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, um, that's still kind of a hurtful thing and a, and a sore spot with me with, with that particular man. I mean, most Koreans are are just lovely people, you know, but you have a mix like you find in any part of the world. Sure, a sure. mix of characters and personalities, and that was just really the wrong approach for that. But Alexander did find um, some healing. He got, he started playing a, a plated mouthpiece and, and uh -huh. got over the brass poisoning. He had um, implants, tooth implants, that a, a really fine Korean dentist worked with him to help get. And he ended up being the principal horn in the broadcast orchestra in the KBS oh. symphony after it was about three years, I guess, three or four years of recovery that he had. But in the meantime, I got bumped up to uh, acting principal. And then eventually I was appointed principal horn in the orchestra without a, without a re-audition. Just they had, as acting principal, they heard me play enough and learned that they could trust what I was mm -hmm. doing. Yeah. So they just, they bumped me up. Um, but I, you know, was playing in a section of four horns without an associate or um, any kind of help, really, uh, unless we had a big Mahler or Strauss, some big blow concert coming up. And then I'd have to go in and, and request, almost maybe beg, <laughs> for some help for the concert. Because right. they didn't, right. you know, they expected me to take care of it. Uh, and some principal horn players can do that, but that wasn't the part I was built to play. I, my, my career started as fourth horn, and I love low horn, and I, I play a lot of second mm -hmm. now. Um, but I did have a career there as a first horn player. Um, but we did uh, over 200 performances a year. That's a heavy schedule. It's yeah. awful. But, well, yeah. and it's because we did our own regular concert series and the ballet right. and the opera and the chorus and all of that. Um, and for the ballet and the chorus, we would do as many as 12 performances at a time. A run, um, yeah. And the Nutcracker was probably the hardest because <laughs> we, did, we did 12 days in a row, two a day. Ouch. So it, Ouch. Was, it yeah. was grueling. And of course, in the pit, you're not going to have an extra down there for the ballet. You just, right, right. You just suck it up and do it. So yeah. And you I figure did. out those places where you can spell just a little bit or, you know, yeah. get, get the You know where things are doubled yeah. and, and yeah. What's, what's really what you can use as rest. Yeah, absolutely. So you yeah. do that. Um, and that's what I did, but I, I did sustain an injury, um, 
about a year before I left Korea to my lower lip. And it's, it's better, but I think it was a tear. I don't know what it was. It was in the middle of a series of Nutcracker performances and I just had to keep going. So I did. And then we really didn't have, but about two weeks off before the season started up in January again. So, um, you know, I just, I felt my responsibility and I just never took care of it, never got help for it. So, but I'm, things are are pretty good, you know, as Mm -hmm. far as playing goes. And I I have a good amount of playing around here. Um, I'm a regular, I'm, I'm a, a, member of the Gettysburg Chamber Orchestra, mm-hmm. which is chamber orchestra is a misnomer. I mean, we play romantic, <laughs> full <laughs> romantic symphonies, but just with maybe a smaller string section. And I sub sometimes with Harrisburg and quite a bit with York, which is nearby uh-huh. in Southern Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, so I have a good amount of playing and it's, an, it's enough. It's, you know, I had a, a full blown orchestral career. Don't want that anymore. Don't want to play principal <laughs> anymore. I'm doing the things I like and it's right. It's Right. And you, you were doing some teaching in Korea, but then, you, yes. you know, you, you came back to the United States and then, you know, right. yeah, I actually um, I started teaching at Mogwon University, which is a smaller um, university, a Methodist university in Taejeon, which is okay. um, a good sized city south of Seoul. Uh, and then I was appointed um, a professor. Uh, really an adjunct, but uh, at the National Conservatory, the Korean University of Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that school and Seoul National University are the really big music schools. And so it was it was an honor. I was teaching incredibly talented students. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was a challenge, but it was it was really fun to do. And I enjoyed that. And that was really my first university teaching was in mm-hmm. Korea. So, yeah. And, and don't they have there's a an, like an international brass competition they have in uh, Jeju or yes on, on Jeju Island yeah, yeah that's a semi tropical yeah. island kind of south of the Korean Peninsula uh, I was actually there for the very first uh, of the international brass competitions and festivals that they had um, our symphony brass quintet played that first year um, and I've actually been an adjudicator three times for the festival okay. once while I was living there and then I've gone back twice since then. Yeah, indicator for the horn part of the competition. It, it's a high dollar prize if if you're the <laughs> the best one. And then uh, they used to have a grand prize, and I think they had to do away with that at some point. But you're still earning seven or eight thousand dollars if you win first prize on your instrument. My goodness, yeah. Um, now I I don't want to go too, too deep down the equipment rabbit hole, but I know that it's something that folks love to love to chat about in, in the horn world. That's one of the things we, we share with our trumpet uh, sure. colleagues is a little bit of equipment talk, but is there a particular kind of horn or, or style that, that, is played in Korea in the orchestras. I know, you know, if you say Germany, people say uh, Engelbert Schmidt or Alexander, and then, you know, various places sometimes have those uh, connotations. Is, is it that way in Korea? Yeah, absolutely. Um, most Koreans who study abroad actually study in Germany. Okay. Um, so when you say horns in Korea, I think German horns because 103 is the horn to play. You'll occasionally see an 1103 or you'll see an Engelbert Schmidt triple, okay. um, occasionally a, a Schmidt single. But it's okay. almost exclusively German horns there. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And so how did you uh, – I, I'm – I, I do a little research for these things, but I, I try to like, you know, just kind of let the uh, the conversation flow. Uh, that's my way of uh, uh, my excuse for not being super prepared. But I did notice in your bio, it says you're you're an artist for crispy horns. And how did yes. how did that relationship come about? And I think people will be interested to know that that company's still around, you know, as in the yes. original yes. crispy style horns. Um, and it's owned by a Japanese man who um, 
his parents left Japan to Germany, and I don't know if he was born in Germany or if he was a small child when they went, but his name is Katsushi Sakaino. Um, and I went to uh, Austria a few years ago to play with a classical music festival um, for the first time, and I have been second horn there several years since. Um, and I thought, well, heck, I, you know, airport, you know, getting through airport, the baggage and the checking and all that stuff. It would be great if I didn't have to carry a horn. <laughs> so <laughs> I saw where he was and he, his uh, Katsushi, and he uh, had relocated CRISPR to Bavaria from former East Germany. And that's, that was pretty close to Vienna. So I sent him a note saying, hey, could you supply horns for the section for this festival? And he was like, well, yeah, actually I could, because he was trying to promote them. So oh, he nice. brought down uh, four instruments and the section played them that summer with one exception, who just mm -hmm. was stick with his own horn. Um, and th that was fine. Um, but I liked the horn I had and I um, had, you know, conversations with uh, Mr. Sakaino along the way and ended up purchasing that horn for kind of a nice artist price. Nice. Um, and I, I don't, I, actually, that's that instrument. He's going to hear this for the first time if he listens to this. Uh, <laughs> out on loan for, uh, to a young man who doesn't have an instrument, who's a fine player, who needs to be prepared for some auditions. Mm -hmm. So, um, the I, I've been playing an old 8D, you know, mm -hmm. a pre-letter 8D, which I love. And that's you know, if I if I leave the German horn, I go back to the 8D. And I've had Schmidt horns, and I have a Cornford triple, and I have you know, I've I've one of the I'm a, a gearhead totally. Okay. Um, okay. In my life, I've probably owned more than 50 horns. Um, <laughs> I don't have that many now. I probably have only a dozen now. <laughs> only. Only. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you can only play one at a time. And the the 8D has just always felt like going home. You know, it's it's what I had issued to me when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and in college, I played an 8D and mm -hmm. bought my own 8Ds. In fact, when I went to Korea, I carried an 8D with me. Um, so, it, yeah, it's just kind of what I come back to. There, there's something really uh, lovely about the CRISPR horn. And, you know, people complain about their intonation maybe. And some of the, the newer models are, are getting better. The one I have is um, I have to deal with it a little bit as far as intonation goes. And I had heard my professor, uh, as when I was an undergraduate at West Texas, he played a crisper horn and sounded stunning on it and, mm. um, but was fighting intonation and you would, you would watch his hand in the bell, you know, kind yeah. of wiggling when, uh, and he knew exactly what to do. Um, and so I have learned what to do on this instrument and it's a gorgeous sound. It's a beautiful now are these, are these large bell throat or medium or I'm actually playing a, a model that does not look like a, a con 8d or the old CRISPR wrap I have a, one that some people would compare its look to a 103 but it's really a different wrap it just has that big open territory uh, around the bell throat between the valve pack okay um, and the bell throat uh, or the tail rather um, so it, it's a medium large bell mm -hmm. and it's an all yellow brass horn Mm -hmm. uh, well, I guess the, the inner slides may be nickel, silver. I can't, mm -hmm. I don't even know as much of a gearhead as I am. I should know that, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there are nickel silver parts on it. Um, yeah, really pretty sound. 
Okay. Really and they, they, they make a variety of horns. I think that would be something people are interested in. It's not just one one model right. of horn, although that that name has kind of become synonymous with an 8D-looking horn when they say right. CRISPR wrap, but that's not necessarily the, the same as the company that makes all these different kinds of horns. Right. Well, he, um, Mr. Sacaino actually has two companies that are both his that work in the same building, uh, CRISPR and um, Curia. Uh, but the CRISPR is the professional level instrument, and they certainly make the old, you know, the original two wraps. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the one I have is a Model 23. Okay. Um, and it's it's a sweet sounding horn. It's powerful, but it just sings beautifully. So well, that's that's cool. And I'm assuming there's a website if people want to go check out more information sure. yes, about these horns. Just Google okay. CRISPR, um, yeah. and you'll find them. And he, his English is fantastic, and he's he's actually visited um, he's visited Messiah, and I took him up to Penn State, and uh, when Lisa was still teaching, she just retired. If you know mm-hmm. Lisa Bontrager, mm-hmm. just retired from there mid year. So, well, that's uh, cool. Yeah, no, so I, he, yeah, you didn't. Yeah, you hadn't realized that, had you? No, well, I I knew that I knew that that uh, Penn State had come open, but no, just the okay. you know that that he was. Um, uh, right coming to the United States and hopefully uh, I, I want to say I've seen a, a CRISPR booth at an IHS symposium. I can't remember um, where. Uh, you have, yes. He's, he's yeah. faithful to go to those conventions and symposiums. Uh, I, he deals, I believe through Dennis Houghton over in, in Fort Worth, Texas and has had representation at TMEA, okay. the Texas state convention, which is massive, maybe yeah. up in the Midwest. Um, so he's, he, yeah, he's trying to get to promote things. Excellent. Excellent. Well, and, you know, speaking about, you know, your international career and, you know, uh, these various connections that you've created over the years, I think now's a good time to kind of turn our attention to the the newsletter. And I I, obviously, I mean, I I was extremely uh, pleased with the job that Christina Masha Turner was doing. And then when you decided to come on board and, you know, were gracious enough to take over the, the editorship of that and you continue to be doing an excellent job. So I, I hope Christina is proud of you and I, <laughs> I'm sure she is. Um, yeah, so tell, yeah. tell me a little bit about how you got involved with that first being, a, you know, a contributing editor for it. And then now you've uh, come into the position as editor of the e-newsletter. Um, Andrew Pelleter is the connection there. He had asked me previously to, to oversee a regular feature in the Horn Call, which uh-huh. actually um, Ellie Jenkins is doing now. Of the I, core values, yeah. Yeah, the core yeah. values. And I had, and originally I had a different name. I was like Meet Your Maker or something. <laughs> something <kind of laughs> I like a, that. I like that. A little dark sounding, but um, yeah, I, I refused that one. And then he came back at me a while later and said, hey, would you would you join the editorial staff? Um, and of course, you know, Christina talked to me uh, first before she approved it as well. <laughs> and um, so I, I'd been I think I served on the staff five years or more. I came on like not not right at the beginning. Um, and I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed reaching out to people and, and soliciting articles and information. Um, and so when she had decided to retire, I don't know if I was her first choice, but she, I, she came to me pretty soon in the process and asked if I'd be interested. And I had to take some time to think about it. Um, and she and I talked a couple of times and I made the decision to do it. And I enjoy this so much. It is incredibly fun. And, um, to 
I, I really have just been able to keep in mind Jeff Nelson's original values and ideas for it, you know, to have all kinds of horn related stuff from all kinds of horn related people from all kinds of places around the planet, mm-hmm. you know, just um, a little bit more casual and broad based uh, publication than the horn call, mm-hmm. which, and the horn call is not a big academic journal, um, but it is, you know, it is a different level. Um, well, and it's there's a different you know theme and a different tone I think to mm-hmm. to the e newsletter, and I think you know they both have their place. And I mean, part of I think the, the IHS has always been an international society, but I think more now than perhaps in in well I don't I don't even want to say that I would just say an ongoing goal is to continue to make the IHS as international as possible. And I think the e newsletter is just uh, doing a fa- fantastic job doing that. So I'm I'm very appreciative of your work and all of the work of the contributors for that. Yes. Uh, well, I um, I really do have a lot of let's let's say Facebook friends <laughs> from around the world, <laughs> but many that I've met too from different places. Um, Nobuaki Fukukawa, who's on the editorial staff too, he and I adjudicated at the Jeju Festival in mm-hmm. um, 2019. So it was nice to actually meet him in person. Um, that was before I took this on. Um, but but knowing who he is and, and mm-hmm. what a kind man he is and what a powerful player he is, it's, it's oh, yeah. wonderful. Um, so, and, and I enjoy that, you know, having lived overseas, not just in Korea. I lived in Japan for a short time and I've traveled to 40 some odd countries uh, touring. I love that. And this is kind of a way to vicariously keep doing that, I suppose. (laughs) Um, So yeah, in the upcoming February newsletter, for example, um, I decided to reach out to players I knew from Facebook in places we don't hear about a lot, and that's Cairo, Egypt, and Mm -hmm. Manila, the capital of the Philippines. So I got contributions from a couple of, of, you know, a guy in each place, and um, it's interesting to Mm -hmm. hear, you know, what's going on or what's not going on and what the cultural impacts are that prevent it or that um, elevate it. So Yeah, and I think... It's it's inspiring to see that, you know, no matter where we are in the world, no matter what necessarily the political or economic situation is, people find a way to make music. And, you know, maybe it's not with the best instrument that could possibly be in their hands, but they they find a way, you know, there are orchestras in, in the you know, places where you would think, my goodness, how do they even have an orchestra there? But they do, and they have horn players, and they're passionate, and they're excited about sharing what they do with, with the world. So I, I think I think you're absolutely doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, um, the contributor for the, the Cairo presentation, uh, Dr. Abunaga, uh, had studied in the States, and, you know, he is originally Egyptian, but he spent some years in the States, actually in the, in the Deep South. Um, and he addresses these things, you know, very frankly, very matter of fact <laughs> in what he writes. It's like, look, yeah, this is not everybody's cup of tea in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And these are the things that hinder us. And he's he's really open about that. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's able to flourish there and um, be a teacher at the, their conservatory, their one conservatory in the country, um, you know, he's, re- he's retired from the, the symphony in Cairo, but he um, is a soloist and um, has a really cool chamber music group that he's put together that I'll let the listener read about when the issue comes out because it's it's really fascinating. Well, that's so. excellent. And and uh, one of the things that 
continues to develop in the e-newsletter, and you can you can probably speak to this more since you're more involved with it. But I love seeing you know the interactive content, the you know the embedded videos, and you know the 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 bells and whistles that you know you, you just can't do them in a print journal. You know, and um, it's interesting to see that you know people really like having a printed horn call. But I think the e-newsletter is is such a special thing as well because of the the you know the content that you can put in there. You don't have to go, you know, look it up somewhere. You click on it and it's there and it's right. you know at your fingertips. So yeah. So to, to have downloads and to have videos and audio clips, I love that. And as um, the, the interwebs become even <laughs> more interactive, I hope we'll include every kind of technology as it comes along. And I'm mm-hmm. you know I am no technophile by any means, but um, I want to learn it. I want to have more interaction. And, you know, the other, the other thing that we do is we, for the most part, uh, issue monthly. Mm-hmm. You know, and the horn call is what, three times a year, maybe four? Um, three, yeah. Three, <laughs> three yeah. Four, three. Um, and we might miss a month, you know, after, like, I wasn't really intending to have a January issue, but all this content came up. <laughs> Right. And we had two issues in December because we had all this Christmas stuff to include. Mm-hmm. And I loved doing all of it. You know, it was fun to do. And it, yeah, it, it does involve time to, to solicit content and to edit. And, you know, the editorial um, staff are great, you know, in helping mm-hmm. out. Um, especially, yeah. and I really have to thank Dan Phillips publicly because he oh, is yeah. a phenomenal technical editor um, on all fronts for the International Horn Society. Yes. So, Dan, thank you. Big Love shout out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Dan Phillips. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's there are multiple social media platforms with thousands and thousands of members. And, that you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, it is a hive mind. But I think part of the uh, special nature of the IHS is that this content is curated. It's not just anyone is just kind of, you know, saying whatever they think. It may be great advice. It may not be. And that's, and I think that's part and parcel of, of the whole social media uh, equation. But I think the newsletter is, uh, you know, you know that this content has been curated. It's been edited. It, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's good stuff. And uh, you know, I appreciate that a lot. And I think, you know, nowadays, yeah, there's a lot of information out there, but not all of it is created equal. So I think you know, that I think that's a, a huge responsibility of the IHS is to make sure that we get the best information we can and that it's current and it's relevant. And, you know, so and, and not to not to down social media, there's nothing wrong with it. But I think our space is slightly different than that. Right. Well, and the, the place it really kind of hits home for me in Horn and More is with our pedagogy column, because mm-hmm. we're we're using those to offer advice, mm-hmm. um, not medical advice necessarily, but playing help. Uh, you know, um, Patrick Hughes, the professor over at the University of Texas, I studied with him briefly when I was back in Texas, um, <clears throat> you know, a few months, mm-hmm. and he helped me so much with one concept. And I asked him, I said, would you let us publish that. And he was gracious and said, yes. And it's in the February issue. So look for that. It's really oh, I can't um, wait to see that. Yeah. great information on, you know, just immediate fast air and how that can help you in the upper range, but actually anywhere on the instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, really yeah. practical, easy advice to, to put into practice. Yeah. Pat, Pat's a lovely guy and a fantastic yeah. teacher and just, man, what a monster player. So, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, that's great. And, uh, what I always like to do um, at some point in these talks is talk a little bit about your 
personal relationship with the IHS, how you got involved with it, and maybe, you know, words of encouragement, or, you know, if, if you were to talk to somebody who's a horn player, and they're maybe not a member of the IHS, what what would be some things that you would say to them to encourage them to, to become a member and to support the their society? Well, first of all, just the resources. Yeah, you know, there are discounts to the symposia and, and maybe from some vendors and stuff like that. Oh, I'm a member of the IHS or hit the little IHS button mm-hmm. to get a discount on, on your purchase or whatever. But um, the the resources are awesome. And this is from – the IHS is what exposed me to different schools of playing. Mm-hmm. Like without the IHS, I probably would, wouldn't have known for years about Herman Baumann or, mm-hmm. you know, the players from France or Russia and – you know, players around the world, and then to actually have lived in Asia and to, to hear these incredible players, some of whom, some of my Korean former students, you know, have great jobs in Europe now, and I have former students playing all over Korea, and it's mm-hmm. it's humbling. And um, but it was the IHS, and it was my professor at West Texas, mm-hmm. uh, Ron Lemon, um, who introduced. Um, his studios uh, each year to the IHS and said, yeah, you should really join. They've got student discount rates. And uh, Mm -hmm. somewhere early on, I sort of had become so enamored with it that I got a a life membership when those Mm -hmm. first came out. I had scraped together the $500 that it cost way back then and have sort of been camping out with that all these years. So it's (laughs) it's nice to be able to contribute now as as the editor for uh, Horn and More um, to just offer something back you know, for everything I've gotten. So I, I encourage my students to, to join. And, you know, my colleagues, I ask, have you seen the, the latest horn and more? Did you get the horn call? I, I ask the question. I do. I ask them um, and say, hey, look, you know, there's really good stuff here. And it's um, for a while, the IHS had um, an academic journal, a referee. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the horn call annual. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I honestly wish that would come back. I think that's a really You're not, you're not the first person to say that. You're not the first person to say that. So it is it is on our radar. So yeah. at least we you know we have the library, we have the storehouse for uh, academic documents and, mm-hmm. and recordings and things like yeah. that. Yeah. So um, but I you know I like if any anybody who's listening has seen my Facebook page, you know I am like dad joke central. Um, <laughs> I'm just goofy and I like humor. And so to include a bit of that in Horn and More, I can get away with that, you know, mm-hmm. like um, when I wrote the greeting for the de- early December issue, I had this goofy picture of me with stopping mutes that looked like they were from Whoville. So I thought, oh, that's that's cute. That's funny. That's appropriate for Christmas, you know, for those who know the references. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I we can take ourselves too seriously. And it's nice to step back and just enjoy each other's company and not be so serious about it all the time. Absolutely, yeah. Um, And in the the tribute to Dale Clevenger, who passed away um, these few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. um, David Griffin from the Chicago Symphony wrote this tribute, and he talks about um, Dale's sense of humor. Mm-hmm. and how how kind and generous he was. And mm-hmm. certainly, we, you know, if you know Lowell Greer or know yep. of him, you know that he was that kind of man as well. Yes. Um, so I love the two memorial tributes that are coming out in this issue for these, these um, legends and masters who've left us. Yeah. Um, because we see their humanity. And um, for, for Lowell, it's a 
a great deal of humor, and for Dale, it's a great deal of kindness and mm -hmm. generosity and encouragement. Yeah, Lowell was such a good storyteller. I got to work with him briefly at uh, the Kendall Betts Horn Camp uh, many years mm -hmm. ago, and yeah, just uh, I, I remember those lessons and coachings very fondly with uh, with Lowell Greer. So, well, you know, uh, a huge regret is that I never met either of these two men. And I lived in Chicago for um, about a year and a half while I played in the Grant Park Symphony and, and never met Dale Clevenger while I was there. You know, I'm kicking myself. You know, it's, it's impossible but, to do everything, you know, and right. you just at the end of the day, you kind of have to, you know, the opportunities that you have are the ones that you have. So. Right. And I, I've had great opportunities, but those men have impacted me. They are like top of the list musical heroes to me for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my favorite albums, and I, I probably have 40 some odd Mozart CDs, you know, complete recordings of mm -hmm. Mozart materials from players around the world and from different eras. Um, but my very favorite one is Lowell Greer's with the Philharmonia. Mm -hmm. It's, he had, it's on natural horn, yep. but he gets the humor of these pieces and you hear it. You hear his personality, you hear his understanding of the naughty things that Mozart wrote in the margins and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the kind of the brevity and, and fun and lightheartedness of these concertos compared to his other, Mozart's yeah. other concertos. And, and the sensitivity of, of Lowell's playing always <laughs> struck me as just, that's that's just really beautiful music making, period. It doesn't right. matter what, you know, it could have been a trash can or a hose or something, but it's <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I just, I, I, I agree completely. Yeah. So, well, you know, it's, uh, we've lost two giants, you know, but their, their legacy will endure through their students who are now teaching and that will be passed on, uh, through the recordings. Thank, thank goodness we have these, uh, mm -hmm. this great repository of recordings from them. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And, and Mike, it's been a pleasure today. And uh, thank you so much for speaking with me. Absolutely. A really genuine pleasure. It. Yeah. Let's do it again in a couple of years. Yeah, for sure. I have uh, new things to catch up on. <laughs> or, or mayonnaise, if you want the dad joke. Right. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs>